just making the view. Making the view. Hello and welcome to the 45th episode of Rank and Review, and this week we're going to come off all supernatural for you. Returning guest J. Adrian Cook and your host and random Canadian Larry Parsons are going to look at six movies on the theme of supernatural encounters. My hope was to freak Jeremy out this episode, and hopefully I've done the job. As usual, you can expect coarse language, and you can expect spoilers for the six movies discussed. And, as usual, if you'd like to send any feedback, you can do so by writing me, Larry Parsons, at rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. You can also seek out the show on Facebook and on iTunes. And I invite you to do so. Thank you so much for listening to Rank and Review, and, uh... If you like the show, do me a favor and find someone else who might like it too. Onwards and Upwards with episode 45. Jay Adrian Cook, thank you for returning to Rank and Review yet again. Um, I have to admit that there was an ulterior motive though for this whole episode. What? I wanted to scare you for some reason. <laughs> I actually, uh, going over some of the old episodes, I remember, I think you were talking about The Signal. You said after you watched The Signal, it made you lock all the doors in your house. And for some reason, that pleased me so much. <laughs> but uh, I thought, no, this time I want to, uh, I want to, I want to, I want to scare Jeremy. I want to scare J.R.J. and Cook pretty good. And, um... So I think you got a pretty spooky selection of movies, consequently. Um, I think I'm going to call this Supernatural Encounters. I don't know that you could strictly speak and call these all ghost movies, necessarily. I, you couldn't, because one of them clearly isn't. Yeah. Um, but uh, they're sort of, they're playing in a similar milieu, shall we say? Mm -hmm. Yes, and I'm glad that I got these six movies, too, because uh, during the our last episode and What the Fuck, I thought how jealous I was that everyone was doing pure horror movies and I realized I hadn't really done one with stuff that's just out there specifically to scare me. Yeah. And we've done some good. terrible twos, we've done some musical horror, we did the WTF originals, which was fun, all well and good. But it's time to roll up our sleeves and get busy with this whole horror genre, which we're supposedly fans of. <laughs> yes, indeed, it's time. And uh, I should also mention that uh, many of these movies were also extra special scary for me because of my workplace. Right. Uh, which I discovered when I started working there, my new job is actually haunted. This place has turned me into a believer. Uh, I have, it, it is an old, uh, um, old folks home that was converted into office space. And... Uh, it's hard to dismiss when you hear women laughing in the hallways. And seriously, one morning when I was working there, 
it was like the 1963 haunting with the amount of banging that was going on there. It was really fucking frightening. <laughs> and <laughs> and of course you're there by yourself at like 4.30 in the morning or something ridiculous. Indeed. And um, at this point, I mean, I go in and the first thing I do is turn on every single light that I can. And this seems to have stopped the noises of, you know, shuffling feet in the hallway uh, that I've heard sometimes. But it doesn't stop the noises that I hear above me in the attic. Um, but it's still way less scary than it was even two months ago since, uh, since I started turning on lights whenever I could. Um, that being said, uh, some of the movies that I watched still caused me extra special frights. When, <laughs> Anything to feed that demon on your way to work first thing in the morning. <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that, but I do take that somewhat seriously. I, I, I remain somewhat a skeptical person, but if, if you can be convinced, I believe I can be convinced, I guess. I, I love me the horror genre, and uh, I house sat in a supposedly haunted house. And uh, I creeped myself out pretty successfully a few times, I think. But I could never say that I conclusively saw something, you know. Or, or, or like, beyond bizarre quirks. Like, I remember uh, Lee saying that the, the CD player would eject music that it didn't like. Ooh. I actually found it would eject almost any CD if you played it too loud. I think the vibrations just made the thing just spit it out. So the ghost doesn't like loud music. Oh my god, I just got chills. <laughs> but, uh, no, I, uh, yeah, that, that is interesting. And so I guess I, I, I'm happy that I scared you, but I apologize if I exacerbated this uh, horrifying experience for you. Well, <laughs> um, like I say, it's quieted down quite a bit. So it, it's not nearly as bad. Um, the the other alternative is that I'm going crazy, um, which means I'm less crazy now, mm -hmm. which is good. Uh, so uh, let me tell you a ghost story. Go. Okay. Once upon a time, there was a protagonist. And this protagonist lived in a place. And spooky things started happening in this place. And at first the protagonist was able to ignore those things that were happening, but they got more and more overt. And even some of the people the protagonist knew started getting hurt. And they were very scared, imaginably. Um, and then they started realizing that there was a pattern to the scary things that were happening. And following a series of clues, they discovered that the ghost was trying to communicate with them. So they followed those clues and discovered the identity of the murderer and the resting place of the unclean spirit. And with the murderer behind bars or dead, the spirit finally found rest. And the protagonist learned something about themselves. Yes, this is most every ghost story ever told. <laughs> yes, well, uh, up until a point. And that point, I, I give it two big movie events. Uh, first of all, 1999, The Sixth Sense, right. in which... The twist in a ghost movie was established. Um, and then in 2002, uh, The Ring came out, which cemented the twist, but also reestablished in the uh, Western world the, the idea of 
a malevolent ghost right. instead of a ghost trying to solve its own murder. Um, and since those two movies came out, we've had uh, very, very different ghost movies. Uh, I don't think you can actually get a ghost movie greenlit these days. Unless... Classic form ghost movies are kind of too easy now. Yeah. You, you've sort of got to been there, done that quality to them. You've got to have a, a powerful twist of some sort. Even if it, you know, the twist fails, which often happens, mm -hmm. it still can't stick to the formula. And while other movie genres out there are languishing in formula land, even other horror movies, ghost movies are in a very original place right now. It's, yeah, there's a, it's a double-edged sword for me because all of the ghost movies seem so predisposed to have the twist, I can't help but hunt for them. Like, yes. Uh, <laughs> I think the reason that, the, the you know, Sixth Sense and The Ring and some of those other ones kind of blew the air out of the tires was because you weren't ex looking for or expecting it. Um, the more I see this twist or the more I see, you know, this game change thing that happens two thirds through the movie, which makes you reinterpret everything you've seen. Uh, if that's done well, I, I love it. But if it's not done well, you know, if you build your entire movie around a twist that doesn't work, ouch. Indeed. <laughs> but the fact remains that the standard for a ghost movie is about destroying formulae yeah. and being original. And I would almost say, are we in the middle of a ghost movie renaissance at the moment? Are ghost movies actually scarier than when we were younger? Are filmmakers better at scaring us with ghosts than they used to be? I think that the realm of the PG ghost movie has great, greatly improved. Um, <laughs> actually, it's interesting. One of the movies we're going to talk about today, Insidious, was given an R rating. And if you watch the movie, there's no coarse language. There's no extreme violence. Like, they went to the ratings board and said, well, how can we make this, you know, for the kids? And there's just like... You can't. It's too scary. It's too intense. It's not for kids. It's rated R. Fair enough. It's a really scary movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> but um, time was that a PG ghost movie I would roll my eyes at. Like, just, you know, okay, they're, they're, everything's going to be okay. It's going to be a nice, friendly ghost, and uh, I, I don't have to really fear any stakes. Um, that time has passed. Indeed. <laughs> And to illustrate my point, the movies that we're going to be looking at today have been arranged chronologically. Okay. Shall we go through them? Yes, please. Um, starring George C. Scott, the Canadian production called The Changeling, directed by Peter Medak. Um, the often talked about, <laughs> this last little stretch of rank and review, John Carpenter's uh, follow-up to Halloween, The Fog, with uh, some good ghost action. <laughs> um, the Skeleton Key... Starring the assumedly cursed Kate Hudson, who broke onto the screen with the almost famous and really didn't make a good movie following it up, arguably until this one, <laughs> we'll discuss. Uh, the previously mentioned Insidious uh, from the filmmaker who did Saw and Leigh Whannell, who uh, is a writer, actor, multitasker in the horror business. Um, Sinister. Uh, this movie is actually written by a film critic and stars uh, my wife's crush, Ethan Hawke, <laughs> as a true crime writer who uh, gets into some true crime. Indeed. 
And last but not least, from this guy who I uh, love to crush on, Guillermo del Toro production, uh, Mama, uh, about sort of the dangerous, ugly other half of what we perceive as mother's love. <laughs> you know, possessive motherly love in a supernatural sort of format is, is quite quite frightening. I'm raring to go. Let's do it. Let's do it. Supernatural Encounters. Take one. Go. Within this old house live two residents. One of them is John Russell, composer, professor. The other has been dead for over 70 years. Claire, I'd like to talk to you about the house. What's the year on this one? Now? 1980. 1980. Ah, the salad days. <laughs> I was four. <laughs> yep. Um, so I obviously caught up with this movie later in life, but um, I have a memory of seeing this at a young age and being quite scared, specifically by the woman being chased out of the house by the wheelchair. Mm-hmm. I remember that for some reason really terrifying me. Upon revisiting the movie and, and seeing it again, um, I guess I'm going to say it doesn't scare me the way it did when I was a kid. It, it, it is, as you were talking about, a very classic form ghost story. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, the strongest asset that it has going for it is the central performance by George C. Scott and the atmosphere of the house itself. Yes. Um, beyond that, it's hard for me to foam at the mouth over the changeling, but I am kind of a fan, so... <laughs> Uh, what do you think of the changeling, Mr. J. Adrian Cook? Well, let's talk about the plot here. As right. you mentioned, it is a very classical form story. We open as so many horror movies open with our main character suffering a terrible tragedy. Mm-hmm. In this case, his wife and his daughter are killed in front of him in a horrible car accident. <laughs> and then, as many other horror movies begin, he moves into a new house. The spookiest place imaginable. <laughs> yeah. And... Uh, when he's there, he starts hearing banging in the hallways uh, at a certain time in the morning and discovers a secret room uh, where there's an empty wheelchair and evidence that many, many, many years ago, a child years, uh, well, years ago, a child lived there. So, um, But otherwise, it's your classic Hardy Boy, choose your own adventure in that there's a ghost that wants something. What is the mystery that needs to be solved that will settle the spirit? Indeed. And as that, it is a very familiar story, and I can't get behind it just because it's happened so many times. And I wonder if it had been 1980 and I'd seen it as an adult, whether or not it would be still very familiar ground. Honestly, I don't know enough about cinema of the past to, to say that, to make that call. 
It definitely has that 70s aesthetic, although it is 1980, where it seems to have no problem taking its time with things. Yes. <laughs> and uh, that hurts the movie. Because I do think you could probably scale this down to 90 minutes. It's almost two hours long as it stands, and mm -hmm. I don't think that it needs to be. But I do have this thing with George C. Scott. There's this, he's got this weird, grumpy, and yet charming vibe to him. Indeed. The first few minutes of the movie where we see him with his family are the only time in the movie where it seems weird, because he seems so happy and pleasant. Ah, <laughs> I'm so happy! It just doesn't seem to agree with him. <laughs> as soon as his family gets wiped up, then, then I, b I, believe him. <laughs> I believe he's a miserable son of a bitch, you know, mm -hmm. who's had a hard life. Um... And yeah, he's he's a musician. He's got this uh, artistic flair or whatever. Uh, so he can connect to this spirit on several different levels. Uh, he's close to death. He's, uh, you know, he's in a similar state of misery that the spirit is. Um, what I did find kind of interesting, uh, we, the spirit's kind of a dick. Okay. Well, I think let's hear that. I mean, uh, he, he kills somebody. Um... Well, George C. Scott, I mean, the place has been kept abandoned, basically deliberately, by the Historical Society. Um, George C. Scott's the first person to live there. So, I mean, arguably, he might be trying to reach anybody who is in the house. But he has the most success with, with, with this, our protagonist. And he does everything he can to help the ghost. He doesn't flee from the place. He doesn't burn the place down. <laughs> he tries to help the ghost. And the ghost, in turn gets frustrated with the poor results and tries to kill him. There's a scene where it tries to blow him off, uh, well, it successfully blows him through the stairwell and down to the second floor. Mm-hmm. Why be such a dick about it? Was he trying to kill George C. Scott at that point? Let's call him John, since that's John his character. John is his character's name, yeah. thank you. Was he really trying to kill him or just scare him to get him, to prod him, get him moving? <laughs> I don't know, it just... Uh... I mean, I guess in keeping with the fact that it's a, a child, maybe it's a child throwing a tantrum, not knowing its own strength or whatever. Um, but I prefer the smaller moments, the ball thumping down the stairs mm -hmm. or, you know, just the single note hitting on the piano to let you know, yep, scary things will be happening. Yep. <laughs> Banging in the hallways, which does uh, owe a lot to the 63 haunting, which I already mentioned. Yeah. Um, so one of the unfortunate things about this movie is uh, the character of Claire, who plays the love interest. And um, I use that term, love interest, in the most Hollywood way possible, as in I get the sense that it's a role that was tacked on to just have a woman in the movie, because she doesn't do anything. She's just there whenever John needs to talk to somebody, and she gets chased around by the wheelchair and needs saving at one point. But there is also a palpable lack of chemistry between the two of them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fabled anti-chemistry. Yeah, well, it's just like he's in a bad place. Everybody knows that he's still licking his wounds. Like the, It's only been a few months if she's trying to put the moves on this musician, uh, I, I don't know. She comes off a little harsh to me, you know. And uh, yeah, I didn't. I wasn't invested in that character, and that's I think part of the reasons that when she gets chased out of the house by the wheelchair, I didn't really feel it because you know, 
if she would was captured and killed by the wheelchair somehow, it, it would have had the same effect on me emotionally as her escape. It was <laughs> uh, minimal. <laughs> incidentally, having seen this movie later in life and not being scarred as a child, uh, the effect on me was just humor, honestly. I thought it was really funny. <laughs> <laughs> and again, why? What why? had she done? Mm-hmm. What had she done? It was just, we needed another scaring beat here. Yes. Um, a couple of musical things I should mention in this. Um, Other than the fact that George C. Scott clearly can't play piano? Well, yeah. Um, and maybe I'll, I'll start with that one first. He's playing a composer. Mm-hmm. Um, and the music he composes is from, like, it sounds like it was written 150 years ago. It's really unrealistic that this guy would be a famous composer in the university system. Yeah, right I don't know. Now. I could see some grumpy, snobby musician who says, there's been no good music written since 1731 or whatever, you know. <laughs> yeah, but he's got a following and he's got a name. And in order to have earned a name in the 1980s university system back then, you'd have to be writing music where, you know, the musicians are barking and clapping like seals and dunking <laughs> their violins in buckets of diarrhea. Well, I'm glad they didn't go there. Well, yeah, I wish I was kidding about that too, incidentally. <laughs> but, um, yeah, with the music that he's writing, I see why it's important to the plot because at one point he hears the sound of a melody in his head which comes from the music box upstairs. Yeah, but that's one of the first ways that he's communicated with. That's what I was going through with the whole artistic temperament mm-hmm. as being a way in for the spirit. But not necessarily a realistic character. Uh, the second thing I want to mention about the music is the score. Um, this was written at a time when musical score composers could and were expected to write themes to their movies when you could get away with writing a really, really memorable little tune to go with your movie. And the ones I'm thinking of here are uh, uh, John Williams, of course, and uh, uh, Jerry Goldsmith, and uh, the, you know, the Aliens guy. I can't, I can't even remember his name. James Cameron uses him all the time, Danny Elfman. But... <clears throat> In a horror movie, that doesn't work so well. It works well with a space opera because it's a space opera. But if you're hearing very big upfront music in a very tense scene and you hear a musical melody being played, for me, that takes me out of the experience. So it doesn't work very well in The Changeling. Typically in thriller and horror movies, your, your, your score is sort of your... Emotional temperament. It's sort of telling you what to feel. It's spoon. The score will spoon feed you. You know. Yeah. Um, like I said, when I was a kid and I was watching something scary, I wouldn't close my eyes. I would plug my ears. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's that's what would scare me. Um, yeah, I I noticed that they made a point of him not showing his hands while he was playing the piano. Mm-hmm. Um, but I liked the way they incorporated some of his equipment. The fact that he was using the old school reel to reel to record his music and that he picked up some ghost chatter on that. Mm-hmm. And I have to give points to a scene uh, where they have a seance or I guess there's something close to it in the house because this is a scene that we have seen a lot and we'll actually talk about it because it happens again within this these series of movies. But where you get a people sort of hovering around a table and a, a medium trying to communicate to the spirit. It's just how do you do that in a new way? And I actually thought that that scene in The Changeling, where they did that, in spite of it being derivative, worked for me. 
okay. Not I, for you so much. Not not so much for me, no. But uh, um, I I just I, I find it refreshing. I like the way that they handled her scribbling on the pads, and the guy was sort of moving the pages for her as she was writing out the words and. I don't know. It, it was one of the better presentations I've seen of that scene. And like I say, it's one of those things you have, you, you, you almost have to find a way to get around when you're writing a ghost movie because that's what you do, right? You try to reach out to the ghost. So there's inevitably that scene, right? So mm -hmm. anyway, I wanted to give it some points for that because uh, I thought it was well executed. Yeah. Uh, so in uh, summary for me, uh, it, it's a decent movie. It is a decent movie. Yeah. Hampered by the fact that it's just so familiar. Um, Even if you haven't seen this movie, you've seen this movie. Yes, indeed. So, um, when you compare it to the other movies on the list, it's just not going to rank as high. I'm not going to say this is a terrible movie, no. but it's also not going to be up there. It didn't keep you up at night, no. <laughs> nope. John Carpenter's The Fog. This is KB Antonio Bay. Stevie Wayne here. And let me be the first to wish Antonio Bay a happy birthday. We're 100 years old today. And keep a watch out for that fog bank heading in from the east. 100 years ago, between midnight and one, something unknown came out of the fog. Now it has returned. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> 100 years ago, between midnight and one, something unnatural came out of the fog. Now, it has returned. Well, as I've said before, I'm, I'm kind of out of the John Carpenter closet. <laughs> I, uh, I am a John Carpenter fan, and um, this was sort of, the, this Fog movie, which also came out in 1980, uh, was kind of his somewhat disappointing follow-up to Halloween. Whereas Halloween was a low-budget horror movie that just did amazingly well, made a lot of money, and actually got some warm critical reception, like horror movies never do. This follow-up got okay reviews and okay response, but was kind of just sort of there and gone. Um, I do think that it is definitely guilty of falling into the ghost template that you mentioned in the introduction. Mm -hmm. There's certainly some ghosts out for revenge, and... Uh, I guess there's not necessarily a puzzle to be solved. We are told the the, spe the specifics of why this is happening. I guess that's the mystery. But basically, this is a classic spooky ghost tale told in a very sort of... in the efficient carpenter way. He is just... He's not about quick cuts or flash and dash. He's a get-the-job-done kind of director. That's sort of what I like about him. Mm -hmm. He doesn't necessarily draw attention to himself. So... I, I appreciated him trying something different than Halloween, right? This is, this is not a stabby movie necessarily. It's more about atmosphere and being scared than about, you know, the deaths and the kills. Um, and the atmosphere really is its strength. The atmosphere, because it's the fog. It's the fog. You yeah. get where we're going with that? Yeah. Anyway. Um, so <laughs> I'm, I'm, again, a conditional fan of the fog. I wouldn't put it necessarily high in Carpenter's sort of oeuvre. But um, I don't know. I think it. I think it does what it set out, sets out to do, and uh, that's how I want to judge these movies. What was the, what were their goals, <laughs> and did they achieve them? And uh, yeah, I think that the fog does mostly, mostly. The plot <laughs> is set. The movie is set in the 
small town of Antonio Bay, yes, which appears to be along the Pacific coast in America somewhere. And on the 100th anniversary of the founding of the town, some seafaring leprous ghosts return from uh, their watery graves to wreak vengeance on the town for what some conspirators did to them a hundred years ago that night. Yeah. I do find that to be an interesting sort of thing about it. I guess we're jumping right to the crux of the story, but um, as we find out that this, they were going to make a settlement for lepers, basically close to this where this town was, and the powers that be didn't like that idea particularly, and uh, they set a false fire on the shoreline, and the ship came in, crashed on the rocks. They all drowned. They were able to collect the spoils and riches from the ship, and that's basically how the the town was made. But as the story goes, this weird fog showed up that night when they did this trick as if to help them. So it's like the fog helped them to do this evil. And then a hundred years later, the fog returns to help the <laughs> this vengeance take place. Huh. Um, is the fog part of the ghosts or is the fog its own entity is... I think an, a, a question I have. Or was the fog that showed up on that first fateful night just a coincidence? <laughs> just a crazy, wacky coincidence. Mm-hmm. Nothing seems to be coincidental in horror movies. That is it. Yes. So my main problem with this movie is the execution. Yeah. Just in that it tells you exactly what it's going to be about. In the first few moments of the movie, there's a storyteller telling kids the story of the ghosts and that one day the ghosts are going to come back and wreak their terrible vengeance and the ghosts do and then later on in the movie where you get told six people are going to die six must die and then six people die and it's a prophecy it's it's a strange thing right near the end of the movie it seems like six people aren't going to die that the ghosts are satisfied with five and when I saw this, I thought to myself, no, 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 the prophecy said six. We gotta have six. And then the sixth person dies right near the end. Yeah. And then I was, instead of me being like, oh no, somebody died, I feel terrible about that. I just thought to myself, well, good. I'm glad they stuck to their own prophecy. And I think that's maybe a bit of a problem. <laughs> um, and I think it's the characters, uh, honestly. Um, the plot... And the characters. Other than that, other than that, you like. <laughs> yes, I didn't care about any of the characters. Um, I guess Stevie, the uh, radio DJ, radio DJ, she Adrian Barbeau, who mm-hmm. ended up married to John Carpenter for a time. Yeah, she was the most sympathetic character and the one that we cared about most. But as for Jamie Lee Curtis, the hitchhiker, and yeah. the uh, Tom Aikens, who plays Nick Castle. Uh, he's not the Punisher but his name is Nick Castle in this movie (laughs) and uh, he's this another interesting I don't know throwback from the 70s in that he's a male protagonist who we're supposed to like for what reason? Yep. He's kind of a dick pretty consistently throughout the movie don't you mind? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He he develops this relationship with Jamie Lee Curtis for some reason. Relationship. (laughs) Yes. And then seems to mistreat her and ignore her for the rest of the movie. He picks up a cute hitchhiker and fucks her and then basically is annoyed that she keeps hanging around. That's kind of how it looks. Sexy. Sexy. Um, I think that this movie was a little bit saved in post, too. Um, 
there's a documentary on the on the DVD that they talk about it, but uh, a lot of stuff in the movie was added late in the game. There's a whole sequence very early in the movie with a bunch of uh, like poltergeist activity and cars alarms going off and like just weird lonely shots to add ambience and spookiness to it. That wasn't in the movie. A lot of the actual physical contact stabby stuff that we saw with the first batch of fishermen was added last minute. Um, I think that uh, when they were looking at it, he felt like he'd restrained too much and in the last ditch effort threw in those shock scenes. And I think that's kind of why the violence stands out so much more. There's not a lot of violence in the movie, but the violence that there is is actually quite brutal. And uh, so it, it sort of breaks the PG mold that it seems to be wanting to be in in that respect. It didn't seem that brutal to me. No? No. But yeah, it seemed very lame duck, honestly. And maybe that's just from a 1980s standard. Um, <laughs> but uh, I don't know. Is this another case of me having watched a movie later than you? Did you see this when you were a kid? Oh, yeah. This is definitely one of the ones that I saw when I was quite young. Um, but... I don't think this was the one of the John Carpenter movies that really, really scared me. It was that that dog being changed into a creature in the thing. When I when I saw that when I was a kid, that really bothered me. <laughs> um, I don't remember my first time watching the thing, which tells me it was or the fog, pardon me, which tells me I was very young. <laughs> um, but you know, I did identify with the Adrian Barbeau character who sees this coming literally, <laughs> and. Yes. and uh, is trying to warn people in, in that frustrating horror movie thing, like, how could you get anyone to believe this? <laughs> really? Like, how could you sell this to anybody that you're not being some crazy War of the Worlds sort of thing in the radio? But um, So she's earnestly trying to help people, and yet she's helpless to really do much. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's an also a, a kind of a horrible scene where she listens to her friend being murdered over the radio. Which I thought would, you know, that would suck. See, that was another scene to me which was really hilarious. Just because his attitude was so macho during that scene. He was talking to her and she was like, listen, you gotta get out of there. He was like, ah, there's someone knocking at the door. Hold on a second, it's just some kids. Quit trying my light in the window, you stupid kids. Don't make me open that door, I'm gonna get you. And she's the whole Doing time. Doing everything yeah. wrong. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Just a second, crazy lady. I gotta go get killed. Yeah. And, yeah, hilarious from, from a viewpoint of a person who hadn't seen it when he was a kid, I right. guess. Um, Hal Holbrook was Hal also Holbrook. really funny in it, I thought. <laughs> he definitely lays on an extra coat of paint, doesn't he? <laughs> he does. <laughs> <laughs> As if somebody said to him, Hal can you do grave for this movie? We need somebody to be really grave. Like, I can do grave. Oh, absolutely. Watch me be grave. <laughs> um, and he is definitely plays the role of the film's narrator. Uh, other than the sea captain you mentioned at the beginning who's telling the kids the story, but like he, he very plainly spills the plot. Exposition. Yeah. And that's that's his role. I actually kind of like Hal Holbrook. I don't know why. I've always had a soft spot for Hal Holbrook. It's probably the crate. It's probably because of the crate. <laughs> um, Janet Lee is in the movie. Um, she's sort of the uh, head organizer of the events in the town, and and uh, obviously Jamie Lee Curtin's, Curtis's mother. And uh, it's a weird sort of connection because. Uh, of course, she was killed in the shower in Psycho, and of course, Jamie Lee Curtis from the Halloween movies 
and it's sort of like uh, it, it sort of continues the sort of legacy of slasher films even though this movie isn't necessarily a slasher mm-hmm. it's just interesting and I'm sure not accidental that these two women ended up in this movie um, Jamie Lee Curtis ended up being front and center in a lot of the advertising for the movie even though her character is very peripheral to everything that's going on mm-hmm. um and uh, although it looks like we're disagreeing over this, and again, this is like a, a C minus review for me. I don't think it's an amazing movie. I just think it's it's an adequate ghost story. It does what I expected it to do. Mm-hmm. Um, they remade this movie, and the remake is considerably worse. <laughs> really, a remake worse than the original. <laughs> no, I know, hard to believe. <laughs> but I mean, again. I would even concede that there's room to improve on here, right? Um, As the concept I. is strong. I like the idea of these leprous pirate ghosties, you know? Uh, they, I get it. I, I think that, that it's strong, and there's no reason that they shouldn't have been able to make a, a remake that was totally watchable, and they didn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, is there anything else you want to say about The Fog, or have we... Uh... Well, other than the fact that I think Stevie works at the weirdest radio station on earth. Uh, she appears to be the only employee at this radio station, which only broadcasts at night, stationed in an old lighthouse. And she plays jazz for this tiny little town. You know, you got to wonder how what, she her, gets... She's got like three people that are listening to her show at any given time. And it still appears to be her job, though. Um, what kind of advertising revenue is this station pulling in? You got to wonder. I didn't uh, think that deeply about it. I'm going to confess. <laughs> well, you know, you watch a movie when you're a kid, and <laughs> you don't think about details like that. But later on in life, you can you can consider them like uh, the Death Star. Like that's kind of a on the nose, an on the nose name, isn't it? Mm. Anyways, it's not quite unobtainium, but you know. Yeah. So for me, this movie just kind of drifted past like a schooner on a rainy day, <laughs> leaving little in its wake, and. Uh, uh, the details are getting washed away in my memory like the tides and uh, being lost in sort of a haze mm. or perhaps a mist. <laughs> uh, what, what else would you call something like that? <laughs> I don't know. I'm a little foggy on it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> in Terrebonne Parish and the surrounding bayous of Louisiana, there are those who practice little-known rituals of magic and witchcraft. Some do not believe in their power, but strange, frightening, and unexplained incidents happen there to this day. Terrible parish. That's the swamps. For a thousand a week, I'll survive. 25 years old. What's wrong with a little change? Hello? Take good care of my husband. Stroke pretty much paralyzed him. I admire you. What you do? Hi, Ben. I'll be taking care of you for a while. Ben, Ben, you're hurting me. There you are. Time for his remedies. Okay, uh, full disclosure. Before we step into this, the Skeleton Key movie, um, I have a predisposition to, like, this whole New Orleans Cajun voodoo atmosphere. I just dig it. Uh, I mean, I've been to New Orleans and uh, sort of had some first-hand uh, exploration of the place. I found it to be a really charming city, but anytime I've seen a movie, even movies that are 
you fairly derided otherwise uh, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil or The Big Easy or anything like that. I just, I like, I like it as a setting and I like it especially as a creepy setting. It's full of history and yeah. gross slimy things. Yeah, and uh, it just, if you're going to set your scary story as with this as a backdrop, you've already got me like my foot's well in the door with the movie. <laughs> so I just wanted to put that out there as, as like, uh, I like it. I like it as... Uh, this template or this sort of flavor of horror is just something that I've always really gotten into. I'm not necessarily a believer in voodoo or anything like that, but if voodoo exists, it's in New Orleans. <laughs> okay. um, this to be fair, though, this is hoodoo, not voodoo. Yes, correct, correct. Um, and, oh, as, uh, as another uh, pre uh, preamble to this movie, I would highly suggest, highly Highly suggest, <laughs> oh ye listeners, that you watch this movie before you listen to this review. In order to really get into the meat and potatoes of it, we're going to have to spoil the movie, and it will hurt your enjoyment of it. I think that if you haven't seen it, you should watch the movie. Absolutely agreed. Mm -hmm. Starting now. You were warned. Okay. Everybody dies. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> Kate Hudson. Uh, Kate Hudson plays a hospice worker who... Uh, ends up going to a plantation to look after this uh, man who's obviously on the way out, played by John Hurt, in a very interesting nonverbal role. <laughs> and, very interesting. Yeah. Um, and um, basically, spooky stuff starts happening <laughs> to her. Um, she's a very skeptically minded person, which is an interesting uh, thread to the screenplay. Um, because part of her journey is that she has to not be a skeptic. <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess that's where I'll leave it for now. Hospice worker, creepy bayou, plantation location, um, spooky things happening in, in this house. Well, we'll say as well that she finds a secret room in the house. Yes. And inside this secret room, it's full of hoodoo paraphernalia, very creepy things in jars and old fetishes and records of some pretty spooky sounding ceremonies going on. Yeah. So that's where the traditional angle of this movie ends because as the movie progresses and here's the super spoiler time, we discover that the whole movie, she is being manipulated by two hoodoo sorcerers from the 1920s. Yeah, they've basically unlocked the key to immortality. Once their bodies get old, they can jump ship to a new one. Mm -hmm. And the old guy that she's taking care of is another continuing care aide who is trapped in the body of the old guy. While the, uh, one of the first sorcerers is now inside the body of the lawyer of the family. Yeah. Played by quite well by Peter Skarsgård, I think. Uh, when you realize what's going on in this movie, it's uh, shocking. Yeah. And it makes you reevaluate everything. And it's worth a second watch to, like The Sixth Sense, worth a second watch to see how the movie was hinting at you, at you the whole time. As a, as a you know a jaded movie watcher, when I was seeing this movie the first time through, I was taking shots at the screenwriter in my head. I said, "Oh come on, man, that's so contrived. Why would 
this character who's a gardener keep a seed box in the attic of this house there's a shed right there and you know there's got to be a better way you know to get this character up into the attic so she can discover the secret room guy but of course was she was all, being manipulated all laid in front of her the the room was meant for her to be discovered and by this character i like the psychological twist of you have, this is a skeleton key it will open every room in the house oh except for one so what's the room that you're going to be obsessed with? Yes. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, the hints are there, too. The the two sorcerer's characters, they, they talk in this very old-fashioned Louisiana accent while nobody else in the film does. And they have a very intimate relationship. Like, they seem to have a comfort with each other, like, like an old couple, right? Even yes. though there's this huge age disparity between the two characters. Again, it's a lot is revealed upon second viewing. It's true when you're watching the movie the first time. I, I wasn't necessarily like poking holes in it, but I wasn't expecting much from it. To be honest, me. It's, <laughs> maybe it's just you know Kate Hudson because her track record between almost famous in this movie had been just a series of really bad romantic comedies and unmemorable films, right? It uh, helped that I hadn't heard of this movie either. Yeah. Uh, but I just, uh, it, it was predisposed, to, like, to me, from the beginning of the movie, yeah. You know, she's this nice, pretty, blonde girl, and she means well. She's a hospice worker. It's all going to work out for her. Nope. <laughs> Not at fucking all. <laughs> right? And, uh, like, so I, I was actually genuinely shocked at, at how dark the movie got at the end, and how smart it was. Um, bittersweet thing about this as well. This is written by Aaron Kruger, and uh, he wrote the American remake of The Ring. So mm -hmm. he's got a pretty good hand with this, right? With twists. Huh. Yeah. Except for he also wrote the Transformer movies. Well... Which are terrible. And it's not just, you know, because Michael Bay is blowing shit up. Like, the dialogue is terrible. <laughs> like, um, I don't know. It, it, it seems... Like, that's got to be a, a for-hire job in my mind, because this is a really smart script, and the Ring remake, I thought, kind of improved on Ring. <laughs> um, I'm with you there, too, yeah. Yeah, so I'm uh, I'm a big fan of the Skeleton Key, and i kind of sorry to report that he followed this up with the Transformers franchise. <laughs> well, okay, you do what you do, and for a, a, a franchise that's about giant robots blowing shit up... Could you ask for better? Really? <laughs> I don't know. It's, okay, I, let's not even go there. We're not talking about Transformers. I refuse to talk about Transformers. There's a really great scene right at the end of this movie. Right at the end. After the villains have triumphed. And uh, <laughs> Caroline, our main character, her soul is now trapped inside the body of this old woman. And... She's being carried off on a stretcher bed with the old man next to her. And they just share this look with each other because they can't talk anymore. They're they cursed. understand. Yeah. There's this look of understanding and compassion and sympathy and sadness that passes between them. It's just less than a second long, but it's so It's powerful. devastating. It's brutal. Yeah. And i got to give some big points to John Hurt because that would have been a weird role to approach. He literally has no dialogue in <laughs> 
movie, right? Like, he's just this bedridden old man with needy, needy, desperate, warning eyes. He's trying to tell her. He's trying so hard to tell her to run from this place. Yep. And uh, he can't. And um, just the way that the trap is so perfectly set for her. Like I said, I love that she needed to be a believer for it to work. Mm-hmm. And uh, they'd been trying to get other aid workers out there, but they get too creeped out by the place, you know? Yeah. They didn't like it. So part of breaking her was first making her believe in this stuff mm-hmm. and then springing that trap. Like, she's, like, completely undone. This well-meaning, beautiful, sweet Kate Hudson mm-hmm. woman is just completely <laughs> obliterated. And the people doing it to her do it with this charming Cajun Ashok smile. Yeah. That that trick where they teach her the circle of protection. protection. She has to learn to do the circle of protection, has to believe that it's real. Yeah. And then only later they spring it on her that, oh, it's actually a circle of entrapment. Yeah. You should have done your research. <laughs> Who taught you that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, uh, it's... Uh... It's a spring trap of a screenplay, and it works really well. I'm really surprised how this movie kind of came and went and not particularly celebrated in any... Like, I guess it wasn't hated. It just sort of didn't seem to make any ripples in the water. And uh, mm-hmm. uniformly good performances, solid screenplay, well-directed. I don't know, like... <laughs> I don't know what you want out of your PG Ghost movie that this doesn't deliver. I guess, you know... The typical Kate Hudson, you know, rom-com group might be a little down by the ending, you know, (laughs) but it's a horror movie. It's supposed to make you feel scared. And I think that in that regard, it's completely successful. Good movie. I would say go see this movie, except that if you've heard up to this point and you haven't seen it, you kind of fucked yourself over, buddy. (laughs) Yes, uh, if you chose to listen to this review anyway and then are going to subsequently watch the show, feel free to write a review and let us know if it's any good, if it's been completely spoiled. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, I still think that it would be uh, you know, a well-made, well-acted movie, but obviously it wouldn't work your, your emotions quite as effectively. But mm-hmm. I'm a fan. Me too. There is something in there with him. Oh! Oh! I know someone who can help we took Trifield and EMF readings of the whole house, wiring, alarm clocks. I don't think bad wiring is the problem here. I want to leave. I want to leave this house. What is it? It's not the house that's haunted. It's your son. Okay, uh, Insidious, directed by James Wan. Uh, he brought us Saw. He, he brought us this puppet movie called Dead Silence. And last year he made a monster horror movie hit called The Conjuring. So now that he's secured his name in the horror genre, he's quit doing horror movies and is doing the new Fast and Furious. Bo, 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 bo. Anyway, um, Insidious came out and it made... <laughs> You're right. You're right. You do remember. It's been a while since I've heard that particular musical sting from The Price is Right. Uh, 
Anyway, I heard a lot of uh, positive press about this Insidious movie. It made a bunch of money, and everybody said, it's a super good, super scary horror movie. So I, naturally, was very skeptical. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing. Um, in spite of not necessarily taking us any place new, this movie's quite frightening. <laughs> and uh, where it maybe doesn't win points for me for originality... It wins good points for working my nerves. There are jump scares in this movie that, that really work. And I'm a guy who can see a jump scare coming a long ways away. Yep. You know? Um, beyond that, it's most memorable for, I guess, uh, getting work for that evil Jedi from <laughs> Phantom Menace. Darth Maul. He hasn't seen Darth Maul in a while, so I guess it was nice to see him again. <laughs> well... <laughs> To be fair, it's not really Darth Maul. It's not really I think Darth you Maul. know that. <laughs> One of the main uh, villain spirits or demons in this movie looks very much like Darth Maul. Yes, the red and black paint and the yellow eyes. Yeah. So here's the story, and this is another story that takes us, that throws us for for a loop. Starts someplace and goes someplace else. That's true. Mm-hmm. A family moves into a new house, Mm -hmm. so we are set up to believe that this is going to be a haunted house movie. And while in this house, the son, one of their sons, Dalton, is led into the attic by something supernatural, suffers a fall, and goes into a coma. And months later, his condition has not improved, and... The woman who seems like it's she's going to be the protagonist for the movie, Renai, starts seeing strange things happening around the house and starts seeing ghosts. Then they move away, because fuck that. It escalates to the point where we can't live here anymore, and they do what you never see in a horror movie. <laughs> they leave. And thus ends movie one. Yeah. Movie two begins, and it's an astral projection movie, which... Uh, there are not a whole lot of astral projection movies out there, are there? They discover Dalton's terrifying things continue. And we discover that the actual protagonist of the movie, Josh, uh, has to go into this dream world. The where Further, they call it? The Further, yes. Um, inhabited by demons and dead people in order to retrieve the soul of his son, was being held captive by this lipstick-faced demon, as it's called. Yeah. Um, but we also noticed this the this main character, Josh, played by Patrick Wilson, who we know and love from Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> um, he has a history from this that he's been suppressing. <laughs> uh, when he was a child, he also had his own dalliances with the supernatural, and uh, he is the most resistant to it. In fact, it's interesting because he, you're right, doesn't see any of the supernatural stuff for the first half of the movie, basically. And uh, when Lin Shay and her like psychic investigative team shows up, he's doing a lot of eye rolling. And for somebody who has this rich history we, uh, that we subsequently discover, um, yeah, it's kind of interesting how how suppressed this has all been for him. Was it, the memories were forcibly ripped from him by this very psychic lady, though, were they not? Yeah, I I think that part of her treatment of him was to save him from being scarred, was to try and help him to forget it. Interestingly, too, um, the mother is played by Barbara Hershey, um, and 
it seems like a direct reference to the entity to me that it be her in this movie, uh, in the movie the entity she plays. She's based it's based off a true case in quotation marks, but uh, she's a, a single mother who's being repeatedly sexually assaulted and raped by a spirit, and she's in a house with her kids living with her, and. Uh, Weirdly, there's weird echoes to that. Like, if those kids had grown up, they very well could have been the characters in Insidious. I don't know. I don't. It doesn't feel like an accident to me that Barbara Hershey played that part. I don't know. Fair enough. Maybe I'm maybe I'm putting that on the movie, but so um, as I may have mentioned, the astral projection genre movie is not particularly rich, Mm -hmm. and uh, there has to be a lot of exposition in order for the audience to understand what's happening in this movie. And unfortunately, most of that exposition is told rather than shown. Mm -hmm. So that is kind of clunky as you're watching the movie. That might be one of this movie's bigger failings. Um, But I like the concept. I like the twists in it. And one of the things that's really great about it, you already mentioned the jump scares. Mm -hmm. Uh, The creators specifically going about this movie, said as a rule, no jump scares unless there's actually something no behind false it. No scares, yeah. yeah. No red herring scares. Yeah. And so every time you get spooked by a boo in this, it's because there is something legitimately frightening yeah. uh, going on. And points to that, no, no scary cats jumping out. And, yeah. and I like how they spook you. That little kid, the first ghost that they see in the new house is this strange little kid seemed lost from time that dances out of a bureau it's just such an odd thing it's more strange than scary but because it's so strange it is scary you know it's just an interesting choice i was talking about the uh scene where they were all hovering around a table in in the changeling Mm -hmm. doing the seance well we have that scene in this movie and they just spice it up by having her wear this weird gas mask over her face lynn shea uh whispers all of her the messages she's getting through this mask and it all has to be interpreted through her assistant and again it's a scene we've seen a lot before but not in this way the mask is very creepy looking. yeah there's just something um, that just makes it more unsettling <laughs> well it partly has to do with the the red light that comes inside it when there is a demonic force presence and that um, and that's one of the other things about this movie is how much it plays with color yeah. You don't see a whole lot of movies out there that play with color in such an overt fashion. And it's the reds and blacks that represent demonic forces in particular. And indeed, we mentioned the main villain looks like Darth Maul. Yeah, It's like a cross between Darth, Darth Maul and Freddy Krueger. Mm-hmm. There's a scene where we see him in this room with all his dolls and puppets and he's actually uh, uh, sharpening his claws on a wheel. Uh, and uh, I, I, you could almost cut and paste that from one of the Friday the th- or Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Uh, like it's interesting because as good as the movie is, is it scaring us? And as cool as some of the concepts are, I think actually once we get into the further is where the movie starts feeling weaker to me. Um, the ghosts in the further don't seem particularly new and don't particularly scare me. They've got that weird sort of trapped in time doll faces. Yeah, with the thing. painted on smiles and yeah, I've seen that before, and uh, you know, so much of that movie I hadn't. That big aggressive 
figure with the mullet who's pacing the halls. Like, I didn't really understand his significance or, like... I think, like, I got the impression that that house that they first started in did have a nasty history to it hmm. that they just didn't get into. And, you know, there, there was the family that was living downstairs that had been murdered uh, with the painted-on smiles and then the, the mullet-looking guy as well. It's the subtle touches that work for me more than the overt ones, though. Like I say, uh, I like when they describe the demon figure up in the corner above the, the bed. And she's describing it and saying it's got hooves for feet looking down there. And uh, they, they show the camera angle of this empty corner, but we know what's supposed to be there. That makes us scared. Mm -hmm. I, I like that more than, you know, the overt booze, when they, especially when they get into the further. Um, like I said, the little boy dancing. There's a scene when she first comes into the house where she walks through her room and that boy's standing there facing the wall, not even looking at her. It doesn't see her. She doesn't see it. She just passes through the room, but it's there. Mm -hmm. That's the stuff that I think really, you know, James Wan really nailed. <laughs> um, once, once we get into the, the sort of big finish of the movie, it's, I don't know. I don't know. It's a strong twist. It's got a big sort of uh, ouch moment at the end where we, 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 you know, our expectations are somewhat subverted. But I kind of felt that punch coming, you know, like. Well, definitely, what happened in right at the end is uh, we don't actually see Josh or his son get out of the further. Mm -hmm. We just know they're being pursued right up to the very end. And uh, at that point, I said to myself, okay. Either Josh or his son or both of them have been possessed. Yeah. Let's find out which. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not a surprise. And I think the movie thinks it's going to be a surprise. But I really felt like that was... I guess it's more of a surprise that he immediately strangles Lin Shay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but um, no, it was not a surprise to me at all. Once they started filling in the backstory of you know him and the, you know, the photographs and... Uh, all of the his, the father's backstory and how similar it was to his son's and why he had to be the one to go into the further, even though, you know, great, great steps had been taken in the past to prevent him from going there ever again. Mm -hmm. You know, the only thing that would bring him back there is to rescue his son. I don't know. Um, but, it, you know, it was sort of a big, oh no ending, but it didn't scare me anywhere near as much as a lot of the preceding things in the movie. Yep. That's not me wagging the finger at the end of the movie. I'm just... <laughs> I'm looking for some negative to say because I feel like I've been almost uniformly positive on it. Well, it's kind of meh. It really is a meh ending. Yeah. Could have could have been handled better. Um, even just by showing... Ambiguity. Yeah. Ambiguity, that might be a good way. Or maybe even... They're hugging their son. Everything looks well. And... Uh, you know, we just sort of close in on Daddy's face and his expression just doesn't seem sincere. <laughs> it's an interesting kind of combo ending here. It's sort of like halfway between, uh, I don't know, Poltergeist and The Skeleton Key is <laughs> where this movie ends up at the end, right? Mm -hmm. But again, it's, it's borrowed elements, but they're done very well. I'd like to talk music again. Okay. Um... A lot of strings in this bitch. A lot of strings. Um, and, yeah, the, one of the first things we see is the title of the movie. 
and then huge musical sting with the strings. Bang! Right? Yeah. Might Very even Exorcist. It reminded me of the Exorcist sort yeah. of thing. But the music in this, kind of like the Changeling, is very, very forward. Uh, and totally different styles. And in this movie, the music totally works for me. Um, despite the fact that it's telling you when to be scared. Um, it's very, very dissonant and atonal. And uh, just a classic score that introduces uh, whinings and howlings and deep roars and stuff like that. You know, the sort of noises that would have troubled our ancestors back when we lived on the veldt. <laughs> the howlings and roarings and whatnot. And uh, uh, yeah, it, it was a, a good experience musically as well. I, I like the little orchestral suite we get treated to right at the beginning, just as the credits are fading in and out. We have another musician here, interestingly, too. Rose Byrne's character is a musician. That's right. Uh, She's a songwriter. <laughs> one other thing I just wanted to mention, and uh, we should probably wrap this up, but uh, when we first go into the further, did you notice that they switched houses? They move halfway through the movie, like we mentioned. Uh, yeah. So when he does this uh, spirit walk, it's in the new house. Mm-hmm. But when he makes the transition from our world to the ghost world, he goes back to he that first back to house. the old house. Sort of strange, strange uh, choice. I guess that's where the the everything started so, for where them. the soul was being held captive by the demon or something like that. Because yeah, it nice. did happen, and the the nasty stuff did start happening in that old house. So yeah. perhaps the the demon had uh, a foothold in there. Yeah, good movie for jump scares. And, oh, hey, if you have coolrophobia and fear of clowns, this is a really good one for you. Because, you know, there's the Darth Maul and the painted on face. And it, honestly, there's, the bright colors kind of gives you a weird circusy atmosphere in some scenes. Did you not find this? Oh, yeah. Yeah. This one scared you, though? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I didn't want to move here. We couldn't afford to live in the old house anymore. Plus, the new story I'm writing is here. Is the story a good one this time? I'm going to write the best book that anybody's ever read. I got a really good feeling about this. (laughs) You got to be kidding me. Finley hanging out. Barbecue 79. That's the family who lived here. You think these are serial murders? I don't know. First one I found dates back to the 60s. The only link between all these cases is the symbol. The symbol is associated with a pagan deity named Bagul. He consumes the souls of human children. So I'm liking the Scott Derrickson guy. Um, he did direct this not very good movie called The Day the Earth Stood Still with Keanu Reeves. But uh, he also directed The Exorcism of Emily Rose, which I'm a fan of. And uh, this movie, Sinister, which we're about to talk about, which, not to dip my hand too much, I'm a fan of. And he's doing the upcoming Marvel movie with uh, Benedict Cumberbatch of Doctor Strange. Is that so? He's uh, He's got a good eye for horror i think he's i don't know he, he he can creep me out and he does so in this movie which uh, is about a true crime writer played by uh ethan hawk who 
makes an unbelievably arrogant and horrifying decision to move his family into this house where the previous family was found dead hanging from the tree in the backyard. Not only does he do this, but he does this without telling his family that that's the case. So we're dealing, yes, with a deeply flawed protagonist. Um, and uh, the movie doesn't really seem to have a problem with that. <laughs> it doesn't seem to go out of its way to make us like our protagonist. Mm -hmm. It goes about the business of presenting a villain that is so awful <laughs> that we have to cheer <laughs> for our protagonist. As he learns about his case in this house he discovers that there are more murders and that they are all linked he discovers a super 8 film box in the attic and sees footage of these murders and discovers that behind most of them is a sinister character called mr boogie and from there on he gets his literary stride back and he becomes a celebrity and everything becomes great. Everyone's happy at the end. <laughs> yeah, that's how I remember it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, no, that doesn't actually happen. No, uh, instead, um, things just get worse and worse. Ghostly activity in the house uh, continues. His children are terrified and um, it doesn't end very happily whatsoever. If there's a flaw to the movie. And I am saying it. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's that I think that it telegraphs the fact that we're not going to a happy place. So by about the halfway point in this movie, I was not expecting things to end well. And maybe that's a hit against it. But the hits for it are that it is fucking scary. <laughs> it's pretty scary. Um, there's, again, much like we talked about with Insidious, some really strong jump scares, but things that you didn't expect. Um... It's a plot point that one of their kids, their older son, uh, suffers from night terrors. But seeing him erupt out of this cardboard box in the middle of the night with this shrill scream is just so frightening. Like <laughs> I couldn't even tell what the hell was going on. <laughs> but it was yeah. scary. Right? It was. Um, I like the way things are set up in the movie. The, the fact that uh, he's got his office where he does his work that the kids aren't allowed in. And that he sort of sets up a similar thing with his daughter, who has an obsession with painting. She's allowed to paint, but she can only paint in her room. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. uh, everybody sort of gets boxed off into their own little areas. And uh, yeah, he's obsessed with writing this book. You get the idea he's had he had great success with his first true crime novel, and has never really been able to repeat it. And as much as he'd like to believe that it's all because of art and all of, uh, you know, him wanting to be a, you know, tell these victims stories. No, he's exploiting crime for fame. And you kind of get that about his character. He, he loves his kids and he means to provide for them, him, but he's a flawed character. And, uh, yeah, it costs him dearly. True. Um... But his character also provides one of the huge problems that I had when uh, watching this movie. Um, yes, he's washed up and he wants his old celebrity back. and He wants to write another good book so that he can provide for his family. That is his motivation for staying in this place night after night after night as it gets progressively more bad that he should stay um, if I was that guy, personally, if I was that guy, I would have been out of there 
way faster than he did. I wouldn't be kissing and my and tucking my children in, uh, you know, after the sixth night or whatever it was. I would be Gonzo, and this movie makes him stay way longer in that house than even his motivations as a character should have been, in my opinion. Yeah, see, I agree and disagree with that at the same time. First of all, he basically bullied the family into this move and uh, they're trying to sell the other bigger house they can't afford anymore so i think there's a percentage of them being prisoners of poverty there and the other thing is is that he sees a lot of disturbing things he finds the super 8 videos with gruesome crime footage on them and that's disturbing and uh you know there's a snake and a and a scorpion up in the attic and he falls to the floor and he finds his son in the box but none of those things are overtly supernatural events. Oh yes, they are because you know even after he's seen footage of Mr. Boogie standing underwater during one of the crime sequences, he stays there. And when it is obvious that his he and his family are under direct supernatural threat from something that he can't even imagine, he's still there. Doesn't make sense to me. Because to me, it's it not seems real like... to him till he sees his little girl draw that picture on the wall. That's when he realizes that, you know, it, it's real. And that's, we see the image in the water. We see even the image turn and look at him a few times, but he doesn't see it, right? He sees a lot of creepy shit, but he is not convinced that he's, it's supernatural until way later in the game. Even if We it, know it's supernatural. Even if it wasn't supernatural, he knows that there's a guy wearing a weird mask who can get into his attic. Yeah, the, 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 he knows for a fact, at a minimum, not only that were people killed here, but the killer, in theory, came back to the house and left that stuff in the attic. Mm -hmm. um, of course, and, he does leave eventually. Yeah, but we get to that point. But For me, it seemed like a convenience to the plot more than a service to his character. Right. Um, it was more of a, oh, God, finally guy, you know. You know, it's it's hard to it's hard to think like somebody who's in a horror movie because you're watching a horror movie, yeah. and they don't know they're in one. Yeah. But he thinks he sees Mr. Boogie in the backyard, but when he goes out in the backyard, he finds his son and a dog, right? The one time when he conclusively goes up in the attic and sees them, that's when he sees Boogie. He sees the kids. He that moment grabs the Super 8 projector, burns it. And tells his wife, we're getting the fuck out of the house. Right? Yep. So, I but don't know. he saw Mr. Boogie on film. Yeah, on, on film. Yeah, he'd already worked out that whatever it was or whoever this person was. Um, anyway, yeah. Okay, well, obviously, maybe we don't agree 100% on that. <laughs> the house is creepy. He has a lot of scary experiences. Maybe he should have left, but let's move on. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Vincent D'Onofrio has an interesting uh, cameo in this movie in that his entire performance is basically on a laptop, <laughs> which I thought was kind of interesting. And uh, he is definitely responsible for laying out the uh, sort of history of this uh, creature, the demon. Or pagan Babylonian god, the eater of children's souls, which I really appreciated, by the way. I always love it in uh, movies when you can ground your body in a little bit of history. Yeah. And so as long as, like, he traces this series of murders back to the early 60s, I think. Mm -hmm. But we can assume it goes on way further than that, right? Yeah. 
And again, that's another one of the reasons why, yeah, he's not stopping this evil, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> what, what, is he, what does he expect to do to write his book about the boogeyman? He's going to blow the lid off the boogeyman and yeah. then what, right? Yeah, I think when we watched that together, we, we actually made that comment. So mm -hmm. if you do figure it out and you round that corner and say, aha, boogeyman, <laughs> what then? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me tell you about one of my pet peeves in ghost movies. Go. Nope. Mm. Now, I know you have yours, which is the ghost coming back at the end. And a character who dies in the movie <clears throat> coming back to save the day pisses me off. Yeah, happily, happily that doesn't happen in this movie or in any of the movies that we've seen here. But unfortunately, my pet peeve happens in this movie. Uh-oh. And that's um, ghosts that only the audience can see doing stuff while the main characters are unaware. Mm -hmm. Example, um, the movie that's really guilty of this is the remake of Salem's Lot, where, you know, bullshit would happen where, you know, somebody opens a door and then there's a mirror on the door and there's a spooky ghost in the mirror. And then the guy just says like, hey, honey, have you seen my keys? Okay. And we hear this scary musical thing. And then she's like, no, I haven't seen them. Oh, okay. And he shuts the door. Right. And it's not scary. Right. It's not scary. And partly because... The main character isn't scared. Yeah. We're supposed to be identifying with these people. Yeah. Um, that, that, there's that one scene where he's running through the, the room, all the house, and we see the ghost sort of playing some sort of weird hide-and-seek game. That's actually an exception to this rule, okay. which I'll get into. Uh, the, the one I'm thinking of right now is where he bends down to look at something, and then the image of Mr. Boogie kind of turns and looks and kind of does this like wink to the audience. Uh -huh. Yeah, hey, Mr. Boogie, see? <laughs> and then he turns back and... Yeah. But no, there's actually one scene in this where that does it very well, I think, where he's walking down a hallway with a baseball bat, and in his peripheral vision, he knows there's things in the hallway moving around. He can hear them moving. Maybe he can even see snatches of these kids, ghost kids, in his peripheral vision every time he turns around. But yeah. we can see them, but he can't. He's really scared, so we can identify with him. But it's a really well done scene. I want to give some attention to the actual videotape or the Super 8 films. Okay. Because they did this sort of uh, element of found footage horror in the midst of this movie. Uh, some of them are more effective than others. I think the lawnmower thing is maybe a little bit more ridiculous than I would have gone. Mm -hmm. But um, <clears throat> it there's something about the way that the, that family is hung in that <laughs> by that tree branch or the being dragged into the pool while strapped to these uh, lawn chairs and drowned like that the way it's presented feels really real <laughs> and uh i appreciated that it's it's they weren't even particularly that gory for the most part they showed some restraint there but uh it was a really good use of sort of the found footage aesthetic in the midst of this very you know cinematic movie i liked it i liked that the videos were soundless yeah as super 8 videos as well that was particularly effective unfortunately the musical score kind of intruded on yeah, that a little bit yeah. but uh i personally think it would have been way creepier if it was more subtle in those movies but yeah they did look very real and kind of candid those family murders Getting to the end of the movie, and like I said, I, I saw this going badly, A, just because of the progression. What are we seeing? What is he looking at in these footage? It's families being wiped out. Mm -hmm. An entire family is killed and one child is missing. And 
who are we looking at? We're looking at a guy, his wife, and their two kids. I think that the movie tries to make us believe that it's the kid who has the night terrors who's being affected by the ghosts, mm -hmm. but the second they show that little girl uh, drawing the picture on the wall, and uh, she sees the other female ghost in the corner shushing her, I knew, right there, this movie's going to end with the family dead and that little girl disappeared. And that is exactly what happened. Yes. Thankfully, I was involved enough in the plot that I was no longer searching for uh, plot threads like that. So I didn't see it coming just because I was enjoying the ride. But did you feel like this was had a tragic trajectory to it? Like, oh, definitely. Yeah, because yeah. you can just tell. You can just tell. Um, I, I appreciate, you know, that they had a flawed character in the center of this ghost movie. And that he wasn't so flawed that I didn't like him and wasn't cheering for him, but that he was flawed, you know? Yeah. Uh, I appreciated that. Um, it's not that I, it, it made him deserve his fate, but uh, in a way he made, he was sort of a participant in, in what happened to him, in a way that, say, Kate Hudson's character wasn't in, <laughs> yeah. in skeleton. She totally didn't deserve All she wanted to do was to help somebody. That's all she wanted to do. Yeah. Well, yeah, for me, this movie just, it is an effective little movie. It suffered some minor flaws and committed the sin of, you know, treading on one of my pet peeves. But, uh, yeah, once again, another really likable movie from what I would consider the modern era of ghost movies. Sold. Horrible conditions. Their parents gone. Alone in the wilderness for at least five years. Hey, Victoria. How they survived is unexplainable. I'm your daddy's brother. Remember Uncle Luke? With a loving family environment. Victoria and Lily have a real chance at a normal life. You sure about this? Nope. Okay, we're going to talk about Mama. Um, Andre Muschietti is the director, and uh, he and his sister wrote the screenplay, Barbara. Um, they are apparently going to be doing a Stephen King adaptation of a short story called The Jaunt, which is a really good short story from Skeleton Crew, but uh, I don't know how you get a full-length movie out of it, but I guess we'll find out. Indeed. Um, Mama is actually an expanded version of this uh, four-minute short film that they made. Uh, Guillermo del Toro somehow got his eyes to it and said, these people need to make movies. And uh, he was correct. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I think that they did jo a good job uh, first time out. And um, I think that the trick to it, uh, the, on the DVD, you can actually watch the short film that uh, basically was the seed of this movie, was 
turning a one sequence essentially into an entire full story and movie. And uh, for the most part, I think they're fairly successful in that. Um, I marvel at the restraint in the movie to some respects. Like, uh, Mama is a really horrifying figure, and you kind of imagine that she would be front and center. And we do get good looks at Mama. We do finally get to see Mama conclusively, but so much of this movie is just keeping you at arm's length and making you wait and making you want Mama. (laughs) Uh, What did you think? Well, here's the plot. Because I always like to talk about the plot. It's good to have. Yeah. Um, well, there's an opening scene in, <laughs> involving a uh, family man having killed his business associates and his wife taking his two girls into the wilderness, where presumably he's going to kill them too. Yeah. He finds a cabin, and before he can kill his little girl, something kills him and we don't get a good look at her or whatever killed him because his little girl has her glasses broken correct fast forward um was it six years so um, was it that long it was a few years anyway Mm -hmm. uh these little girls are found by searchers who are being paid by this man's brother lucas and his girlfriend Annabelle is with them, and now they suddenly find themselves being um, taking on the role of caring for two feral children, who and are trying to figure out how in the world they survived. Yes, <laughs> and this is another interesting movie in that it's another movie that where the protagonist gets switched. It seems like Lucas is going to be our main hero, but then Annabelle. Jessica Chastain Mm -hmm. takes the lead role after something well Mama scares (laughs) Lucas and he falls down and goes into a coma and it becomes this movie about mothering and we see two different versions of mothering we see the reluctant mother uh, represented by Annabelle who learns to actually love these two girls and but has it kind of forced on her yes Um, and then we see Mama this horrible, possessive, supernatural figure that will kill in order to uh, keep her children. Her identifying characteristic is that she cares for these children. That's what she does. That's that's her role. And uh, anybody looks at them sideways, she gets very covetous, very jealous of them. So, uh, yeah. It is an interesting and fairly obvious yin and yang between Jessica Chastain, who's like in her 30s but still acting like she's in her teens in a little way you know and uh she loves her boyfriend and uh, i think likes the idea of being a mom but has never really had to be real about it until it's just thrown in her lap another musician another musician weird (laughs) yeah Um, but yeah you kind of get the she, she seems put out by it and she seems uncomfortable that you know her life is not as easy as it would once was but caring for these kids is, you know, giving them a beautiful place to live. And uh, it's obviously what her boyfriend wants, who she clearly loves. So she's taking the hits. But it's not altruistic on her fact. She's just, you know, <laughs> rolling with the punches. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is interesting. Because, you know, in any other movie, it would be this, you know, woman who couldn't have children and wanted her whole life for this to happen and uh, this tug of war would be between like the perfect mother and the antithesis of that. Mm-hmm. 
who's the better mother in a given scene could be argued. Mama's an evil figure, but she kept those kids alive in <laughs> four years. <laughs> mm-hmm. So let's talk about Mama. Because I think she's one of the more terrifying creatures ever put to film in the last few years anyway. Mostly because, as you mentioned, we don't get good looks at her until the the very end. But when we do, there's just so many fascinating things about her and the way that this creature's been realized. Uh, She starts off as a, a, a mental patient, and so she's got this stringiness to her uh gauntness honestly if i saw even just that woman wandering the hallways of my workplace i would quit and uh, yeah no more (laughs) then she's dead she's got the ghostly gray skin tone to her she's got her hair looks like it's always floating underwater around her her back was broken on the fall down so she can contort herself into various unnerving forms and cool thing about the special effect too jeremy is that other than her hair it's not a cg creature that's actually i'm sorry i don't believe you (laughs) it's true there's a there's a dude in a suit Uh, it's actually a guy a very very slender dude in a long slim suit and they animated the hair but uh they had him up on wires holding the girls like mama was physically there you I'm sorry, I have to reevaluate my life. <laughs> you have to reevaluate. Wow. <laughs> um, I, I'm trying to remember the name. Uh, Javier Boutet is the guy who plays Mama in this, and uh, he sort of specializes in playing really slender, creepy creatures. Hmm. And uh, yeah, that's part of the part of the really impressive thing about it. Looks CGI though. Especially, I mean, because of the hair. There's no other way to get around it. In order to get that swirling action and that sort of ghostly thing, that was all animated. Mm -hmm. But the actual figure itself of Mama was an actor. That's uh, that's astounding. (laughs) And I think it's good for the actors on set, too. Mm -hmm. Instead of saying, now, Mama's approximately here, be scared. Having the dude there, you know, makes it real. You know what else is really creepy about this? The youngest daughter, Lily. Yeah. She plays this feral creature so well. And, like, you wouldn't want to be in a room with this little girl. Like, you just have no idea what she's going to do. And, yeah, there's a scene where both of their creepiness is combined when uh, I think Annabelle is having a dream. And we just see her looking down this dark hallway. We see... Lily lope up on all fours and you know there's something awful at the end of that hallway but and then she comes back to the end of it you don't see ever what's there and that's the dream <laughs> I, I love the scene in there there's a sh- shot just over I think Jessica Chastain's shoulder she doesn't see it but the girls are playing in the room and they're spinning in a circle and mm-hmm. then you can just see their feet lift off the floor all of yeah. a sudden they're hovering just for a second you know mm-hmm. You know, it's the little things. (laughs) Mama playing with her little girls. Yeah, that was a fantastic scene as well. Um, Yeah, I got to say, more than any of these other movies, I'm going to come right out. This movie worked my nerves like nothing else. I was was seeing Mama at work for, (laughs) for a few days afterwards, worrying about what would happen if Mama decided to open the door. Um... 
Um, good backstory too. Like the backstory. Um, uh, you're talking about Lily, the younger of the two girls. Sorry to jump yes, again. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, one of the things that's interesting about her, mm-hmm. she doesn't speak a word of English. Oh, she's Spanish, is she? I think she was French. Hmm. Uh, her name is Isabella Nalisa. Hmm. Um, but yeah, she didn't speak English. Uh, so she was the, the sort of more feral of the two. She was also the younger of the two when they were brought out to the woods. So she was, she didn't have an anchor memory of sort of the real world mm-hmm. to cling to. And I think that's why things don't play out as well for her character. <laughs> well, maybe they do, depending on how you, on look, how at you it. look at it. But, but uh... yeah, well, again, I think we should go to the spoilers, shall we? Spoiler town. <laughs> Spoiler town. <laughs> um, as we find out in the origin of this, this horrible mama creature, she steals a baby and tries to run away with it and uh, ends up jumping off of a cliff. But during her plunge, loses the baby. <laughs> Uh, and uh, that's part of her, her constant supernatural need. It was part of her sort of supernatural origin story, you know, that she'd be built of this need to care for these children. And one wonders what kind of horrible shenanigans she was up to before she found these girls. Mm-hmm. Just this, this broken, angry spirit wandering these woods, right? Looking In a for way... the bones of this child that died on the fall down, yes. Yeah. Um, and in a sort of typical ghost story fashion, we end up, we end up full circle. We end up on that ledge and, uh, mama's wanting to take the girls to the trip, sort of trying to end again the way that she'd tried to end her life. But what really kind of got me about this, other than sort of like the physical brutality that, uh, Jessica Chastain character was subjected to in that scene is that she does not successfully save those little girls, at least not both of them. Mm Mm-hmm. And I, I was genuinely surprised by that. <laughs> I was really worried that we were going to go for a Disney ending. And, you know, after, you know, have shit stomping uh, Jessica Chastain over and over again, Mama was going to realize, oh, yes, she is a worthy mother for these two Look children. Look at what she's put herself through. And give them back. But no, no. Lily goes with Mama and Victoria stays. And presumably, Lily becomes a ghost or dies or they something like that. They seem to turn into these weird moths yes. that, as they fall off of the edge of the cliff. It's strangely beautiful and odd, but uh, again, it was just, it was not the ending I was expecting. It was bittersweet at best, you mm-hmm. know? Um, Points for it. Yeah. For for not making uh, a movie that ended the way I was dreading it was going to. And I, I was expecting it to end with both of the little girls alive that that was basically what i was banking on either either jessica chastain would uh, defeat mama somehow or they would end up in another house and mama would have followed him those were the two like endings that i was expecting i guess yeah and i got neither of them and that is to the movie's credit yeah and the way that they they thwarted that one where they defeated mama somehow i should mention as well uh great twist there where there's this MacGuffin of the other of the long dead baby's bones. They've been discovered, and Doctor Dreyfus has them, and he's uh, and so uh, I'll return it to her. Yeah, let's return the baby's bones to Mama. And so, and they're on the cliff edge. They give Mama the bones, and she starts turning human, and like she's gonna get ghosted out of out of existence, having finally found her kids. But then, 
She detects Lucas and Annabelle trying to sneak away with Victoria and Lily. No dice. And she flings that fucking baby corpse over the cliff. Yep. No fucking way. Yeah. <laughs> Those are my kids. And then proceeds to shit kick them. And that's what's really <laughs> scary about Mama. The mine thing. That, mm-hmm. that possessiveness. Uh, uh, that's the strength of the whole concept, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um couple of plot problems with this um just in terms of predictability um dr dreyfus and lucas's sister might as well have been wearing sandwich board signs that said i'm gonna fucking die yeah and like (laughs) both of them were just yeah well i guess less so the doctor but they they kind of announced themselves as problematic characters right (laughs) yep yeah um and then the secondly the secondly maybe i just missed something but you remember Lucas, when he's in his coma, has this dream. His brother comes into him and says, you got to get out to this train bridge and save your girls. And so Lucas w- wakes up from his coma and he drives out there and finds this mysterious location with a train passing over it. And then nothing happens with that. Presumably he stays there wandering the woods for hours and hours and hours until he suddenly jumps out at Annabelle saying, I got your message! (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yeah, I guess I'd kind of missed that. That's sort of a loose thread of plot. Yeah, I would like to know what was there. Why would a dream push him in the wrong direction? I don't know. Yeah, so great movie. Overall, great thumbs up. That one scared you. It did. So not all of these got under your skin, but a couple. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, final note. Yes. Um, you'll notice Mama in this movie makes sounds. It's like, and, and stuff like that. Those are the noises zombies make. And I'm wondering, you know, just on the you know, human psychology and whatnot, um, those kind of sound like honestly uh mentally disabled people noises mm-hmm, yeah. what is it as humans that we find so disturbing about those noises well i guess you can't really reason with something that communicates in that way in the mama's case specifically i just thought she was in pain because she was broken that was part of her suffering i don't know mm-hmm. they made a point of her back being all crooked and yeah yeah uh, are we are we that afraid of people with mental disabilities? I, I guess so. I know I am. Yeah, <laughs> but it's not really discussed much in what motivates people, this weird phobia we have. And then it was time to rank these scary supernatural films. Um, so I'm, I'm glad you had fun with this overall. Definitely. All right. Uh, um, yeah, I guess you've been showing strong favoritism, just from I can tell, to the more modern takes. Um, so I, I've kind of got an idea of where you're sort of roughly going to be sitting. Um, do you think it's just because time has been unkind to them or we're just better at making ghost movies nowadays? I think we're better at making ghost movies and uh, my list is prepared to stand by that. (laughs) All right. Well, what was your least favorite of these six movies and why? Well, I've, first of all, uh, I've got to say it was a really hard rank, really hard rank because 
the two pre-Sixth Sense movies I liked about as much as each other, and the four that came after it, really difficult to put ahead of each other. I liked all of these movies. Right. So, liked them all, and uh, it's a disservice to put one of these at number six and have it be, you know, like... A, a six, that's like The Exorcist <laughs> 2, okay? That's what I equated in my mind as. And so it's not right that one of these should be number six, but there it is. Number six for me is The Fog. Because it did its job, but not very memorable. Um, number five is The Changeling. Because it was... So once again, another good movie that did its job, just we're in familiar territory. Now the really hard part. Four, I put Sinister, because I had problems with the main character not leaving the house. Okay. Three, Skeleton Key, um, because it was, in a lot of ways, a perfect movie, but unlike the other ones, it didn't really really scare me a whole lot number two is insidious because there are some great jump scares in it and uh, you know it was a, a fun movie quite enjoyed it um, but number one I'm giving to mama uh, because it's been a while since a movie has actually creeped me out as much as it did so that's my list okay so we didn't quite go zero for six. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> um, the bullet point here is that, for the most part, these are these are good movies. I think they're, they're, if you're into ghost movies enough to listen to this podcast, I say give these movies a pass. I agree with Jeremy that the two films from 1980 are on a different level. And yes, they are the bottom two on my list. <coughs> They're just in a different order than you. <laughs> I put the changeling at the bottom of the list. I actually do have some affection for the movie. I like George C. Scott as an actor. Um, and I think as far as like a 1980 ghost movie goes, like it's solid enough. It's just not going to change your world. I know there are some people who will overhype this movie too, saying it's one of the greatest ghost movies out there. I wouldn't push it that far. I would say it's completely decent. And that's exactly what I would say about The Fog. I think it's completely decent. It doesn't break any new ground, but it it's good at being what it is, which is, you know, a ghost come out of the fog and go boo type of movie. <laughs> um, and it gets leaner too. This one's like 91 minutes, you know. Uh, it gets the job done. It doesn't overstay its welcome, which I think arguably the changeling, especially nowadays when compared to what we're used to where we end up. So, And now we get to the hard part. And I'm sorry, but all the way in fourth position is where I put the skeleton key. Although I agree completely that it's solid and that the sort of spring trap of the screenplay worked. But it goes back to what you said. It scared me the least of these movies. In a way, the, the, right, the sort of the trick of the screenplay impressed me. But I wasn't scared. I didn't lose any sleep. It's a fairly... It is still a fairly PG ghosty movie. <coughs> or possession movie. Or hoodoo movie. Or however you want to call it. Because it's not ghosty. Because <laughs> it's not ghosty. Um, in third place. And this... Like the top three. Brutal. <laughs> like tough. But I put Sinister in third place. I just think 
it telegraphed the punch a little bit too much for my liking. I got over the fact that he stayed in the house because I guess if he left the house, the movie would be over. And I was enjoying the movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I do endorse Sinister. I think that it's it's solid. Sequel's coming out later this year. Um, I'm just going to assume it will be diminishing returns. But Sinister deserves a place. It, it, it should be watched. In second place, I put Insidious. Um, I don't think it's as groundbreaking as people give it credit. I have seen, you know, fathers go into a different spiritual plane to rescue their kids. That, that was, you know, Poltergeist, and there was other movies for them. I mean, like, it's pretending that it's more innovative than it is. But really, I think where it really shines is the old tricks, the old jump scares, the old sort of standbys that we should be used to, that we should not be able to be impressed by anymore. James Wan found a way to scare us with stuff we'd seen before, and bravo to that. But Mama has some originality to it, right? Like, uh, I haven't seen this particular angle played on the ghost. The ghost was scary, and the amount of restraint showed by the filmmakers, I think, was kind of bold. And uh, I gotta stress that, that opening, we talked about it in the review, where he drives his kids out to the forest and is, you know, getting ready to kill them. And the movie starts in such a dark place <laughs> that I guess maybe that is the measure to the darkness of the ending. But uh, uh, I don't know. It took me someplace that I hadn't been and it was scary. So big praise. That said, the top three, and I will even include Skeleton Key on this, all very, very strong horror movies. Yep. <laughs> You're yeah. disappointed. Well, no, I, can tell. I am disappointed, but the problem is I can't disagree with your list. <laughs> I really can't, because if this had been a different day, that would have been my list, too. Yeah, it's it's and a tough one. Yeah. I'm sorry, brother. God, I gotta, I gotta choose a category that it's everything obvious. is just it's obvious. just obvious. Yeah. <laughs> Something that I've already heard you talk about the movies. Yeah, that's what I'll go with. Oh, no, because I think you should do Terrible 2's the sequel. Okay. <laughs> okay, Mr. J. Adrian Cook, namesake for the Jerry Awards. We're doing something a little different this episode, I am told. <laughs> That's right, because I was so cruel to you in our last episode... <laughs> Uh, where you didn't win any Jerry's. I got nothing. This time, I'm going to give you the Jerry's. I'm going to give you the nominations, and you get to choose who the winner is. Sweet. So, uh, without any further ado, let's hand out best performance. Okay. Was it Nikolai Koster-Valdo, who pulls off two believable characters while putting on an American accent in Mama? Right. Was it James Ranzoni as the hilarious Deputy What's-His-Name in Sinister? <laughs> was it Kate Hudson for playing a poor, frightened dupe, Caroline, so well in Skeleton Key? Or was it George C. Scott playing composer John Russell with Grace in The Changeling? Uh, controversially, I'm going to give it to Kate Hudson. Dun-dun-dun! And why is that? Um, well, my love of Game of Thrones isn't enough for me to give it to Nikolai. Uh, he uh, he did play two characters, but they were, like, identical. <laughs> like, uh, I guess one of them was crazy and the other one was nice. But, I mean, they, 
I didn't see a lot of variance in the performance necessarily. Oh, okay. Well, I did, but whatever. Uh, Kate Hudson, I nominated her. She's good. <laughs> uh, well, I guess because she established herself as being really awesome and almost famous and then has been given nothing to do. And even in, in, in this role, she is sort of kind of the passive victim role. In a lot of ways, she just falls perfectly into the clutches of these evildoers. But uh, I liked her and didn't want anything bad to happen to her. And that was a big part of what made the movie work. Hmm. So uh, I'm going to, even though I, I was knee-jerk, give it to uh, Mr. Grumpy Pants. <laughs> <laughs> George C. Uh, George Scott. George C. Scott. Because I do genuinely get a kick out of him. But uh, he is, to a certain degree, always George C. Scott, too, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so now she's Jerry Ward. She's a Jerry Ward actress. actress, which is Kate weird. Hudson. There it is. Yep. Well, that's okay, because there's also worst performance coming up nice. here. Was it Hal Holbrook for the overly grave Father Malone in the Fog? Or was it Jamie Lee Curtis for the girl who doesn't do anything in the Fog? Or is it Trish Van De Veer for her stagey performance as the pointless Claire Norman in The Changeling? I'm going to controversially give it to Kate Hudson. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, you know what? I am going to give it to Jamie Lee Curtis. Even though that maybe not fall completely on her, it's sort of the screenplay had a lot to do with it. But uh, just because she was interviewed uh, in 1980 for the documentary on this thing, and she came off real pretentious. Oh. I'm going to name her worst actress. <laughs> worst performance. <laughs> All right. Did she already have a Jerry? Nope. Okay. No. I believe she did. Well, that's an important milestone for her. She is a Jerry Award winning actress for sucking in the fog. <laughs> Best kill. Now, this is a weird one because strangely, there are not a lot to choose from. There's in... not a whole bunch of kills, I guess. No. Yeah. The biggest body count is in Sinister. And so I'm just going to give you Sinister ones to choose from. Was it? <laughs> The family that gets hanged together. The family that gets strapped to lawn chairs and pulled into the pool to be drowned. The family that's burned together in the car. The family that gets run over by the lawnmower. Or finally, the family that's axe-murdered and their blood used to paint a house. I don't know. I'm going to go with the bare simplicity of the tree branch hanging. Yeah. A family that hangs together... Hangs, hangs together, together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's uh... there's a really brutal moment uh, when we, it's revealed how involved the kids were when she grabs hold of one of the bodies and swings off of it. Mm -hmm. I thought that was kind of dark, you guys. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was even sinister. Okay. Um, well, best scare. All right. And there were a lot of them. Boo. But. Honestly, if we're just going for jump scares here, which this is what this category is all about, was it the lipstick-faced demon unexpectedly appearing behind Josh in that one famous scene? Or was it pick your own mama scare? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I really like the mama scare when uh, it's under, she's underneath Jessica Chastain's bed mm -hmm. very briefly there. But I think points should be made. I mean, if I'm giving it out of that, I'll give it to Mama. But that kid coming out of the box from his night terror in Sinister mm. is pretty fucked. <laughs> like, that's scary, I thought. But you don't get to name nominations, I guess sir. not. So I guess Mama. <laughs> Mama's going to win for best scare. Okay. See, I, was, I would go with the one where... We for discover Mama has that broken back and she charges uh, with her back all fucked up. Like yeah. that was a little weird one. Okay, 
best creep out is in for the most dread generate uh, generated um is it the legend of bugul the babylonian god eater of children's souls complete with german woodcuts which are always extra creepy mm -hmm. nice little bit of history there was it the banging on the halls of john's house every morning in the changeling was it the kids playing with mama in their bedroom or was it the legends around the hoodoo room, including the creepy preserved animals and records of awful ceremonies in Skeleton Key? Oh, weirdly, I'm going to give it to the Skeleton Key hoodoo room. It's just for his like, disquieting vibe of places that you don't want to be. <laughs> it wasn't really a jump scare, but as soon as you went into that room, you knew that this was just bad news. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting choice. Interesting choice. Okay. Biggest unintentional laugh. Uh-oh. Is it Trish getting chased around the house by an empty wheelchair in the changeling? <laughs> Was it <laughs> Weatherman Dan's hubris in getting him killed in the fog? <laughs> Damn, kids! <laughs> um, was it that dream that Lucas has leading him to the mysterious railroad bridge in the woods? Yeah, I'd totally forgotten about that for some reason. That's where weird. he does nothing yeah. <laughs> in Mama. Or was it Ellison staying night after night after night in that horrible house in Sinister despite obvious warnings? I guess Elle is sticking around, although uh, we, we kind of batted that one about during the review. Um, Why are you choosing that one, then? Well, because you were laughing at it when we were watching the movie. <laughs> but for me, it read more like you were just frustrated because you were nervous because of the tension of the movie. Why are you still in this house? <laughs> I enjoyed it, but uh, I agree that there, there was a very mapped out trajectory that this was going on. Mm -hmm. His inability to not run away was his doom. <laughs> yes. So, so you laugh at him. And lastly, biggest what the fuck. Um, once again, the lipstick-faced demon appearing behind Josh in Insidious. I mean, I can't praise this this um, jump scare jump enough. scare enough like ju not just the fact that there is a scary demon standing behind somebody but the fact that he was so red yeah <laughs> and so black and so scary looking unexpectedly um then there's the twist revealed in the skeleton key forcing you to re-examine every previous event as a manipulation of poor caroline um mama gets her baby back Starts looking human again. Looks like she's going to get banished to the land of wind and ghosts. And then says, fuck that, and throws the baby <laughs> over the side. Those are your categories. I would say the discarding of the baby corpse, just because it was such a uh, wonderful... With discarding that those bones, it was sort of discarding any cliche that the movie was going to make you think it was reaching for, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, and that's all the awards. You did it. Yes. I got them all right. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for returning once again to Rank and Review. Um, and yes, as promised, J. Adrian Cook shall return to do a sequel, our first sequel episode. <laughs> uh, Terrible Twos, the sequel. I'm looking forward to it. It's been an absolute pleasure.
And with that, episode 45 of Rankin Review is put behind us. J. Adrian Cook may not have lost too much sleep over that episode, but uh, he may be feeling the frustration of once again being denied a Rankin Review championship. So uh, we'll keep on listening and hopefully uh, Jeremy will get his day. As usual, your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons, would like to thank you very much for listening and ask you to help support Rank and Review by seeking us out on Facebook and iTunes. Until next we speak, thank you.